Today brings us to 2 Corinthians 4, verse 13. And we're going to read right through to chapter 6, verse 3. If you have a Bible with you, please turn there right away. The words will probably come up on the screen, but if you have your own Bible, it kind of helps. So um, please do that. Today's passage is the specific source of the idea which, for the purpose of this series, we're using as the key to the entire book, the ministry of reconciliation. But as you'll notice, it's also particularly rich, this passage, today's passage, in, in teaching on the contrast between uh, the earthly and the heavenly, the temporary and the eternal, the physical and the spiritual, the outer show and the inner reality. Paul wants us to think of reconciliation with God in terms of living the eternal life that Jesus promised us, right here, right now. If we're truly reconciled with God, we will learn to inhabit this earth of time and space as he himself does. Not mutely accepting the way things are, but bringing eternal spiritual realities to bear on the earthly reality wherever we go. That is the nature, as Sarah reminded us two weeks ago, of being the aroma of Christ in the world. Like God, who identifies himself as our father, so there must be a family likeness, we should be people who speak things into existence in accordance with his plans. Like Jesus, we should be those who calm the raging seas or heal the sick with a word, or who can bless a couple of fish sandwiches and feed thousands with them. The gospel we believe and preach, the logos, the word of God, is the treasure in clay jars, which Steve was teaching about last week. And if we look only at the jars, that is, at ourselves, what we see is something cheap, fragile, of no great beauty, except me, obviously, and of very little value. But Paul wants us to regard the treasure within instead, not the jars on the outside. And above all, I think what today's passage is about is learning to tip some of the treasure out. God has put a load of wonderful things into our hearts. Life-changing truth, gifts of the Spirit, even the Holy Spirit himself. But we are the light of the world. And those things aren't supposed to just sit in the darkness of our own hearts. The treasure in us is to be poured out generously, extravagantly, even recklessly into a spiritually destitute world. This passage then, I think, is all about speaking from the heart. And that's the title I've chosen for today, Speaking from the Heart. And since the best commentary on the Bible is the Bible, I want us to read this section of 2 Corinthians today in the context of another short scripture, which is actually from Matthew 9. It'll be familiar to you. It's right before Jesus sent the disciples out to preach and heal in his name. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease, and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them, for they were like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. So now let's read our passage, um, beginning at chapter 4. Verse 13. 
Since we have the same spirit of faith, according to what has been written, I believed and so I spoke, we also believe and so we also speak. Knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. For it is all for your sake. So as, so, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. For you know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling, if indeed by putting it on we may not be found naked. For while we're still in this tent, we groan, being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee, so we're always of good courage. We know that while we're at home in the body, we're away from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not sight. Yes, we're of good courage. And we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So whether we're at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. So that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But what we are is known to God, and I hope it's also known to your conscience We're not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what's in the heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we're in our right mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and trusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore you, on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake he made him to be sin, who knew no sin. So that in him, we might become the righteousness 
of God. Working together with him then, we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, in a favorable time, I listened to you. In a day of salvation, I have helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Now that's a long passage and at first sight it seems rather a complex one and we could unpick it in various different ways, I'm sure. But in terms of the theme that God seems to be laying before us today, it falls more or less neatly into six short sections. In 2 Corinthians, and this is quite understandable in the circumstances of writing, St. Paul presents his readers with a great deal of example and not much in the way of direct instruction. But my intention today, for reasons that should become obvious as we go on, is to take the whole thing as instruction. Six instructions. Number one, speak out what you believe in. Verses 13 to 16a. The letter has already mentioned Paul's great suffering for the gospel. And there's a lot more of that to come, as you probably are aware. He regards this suffering as the normal expectation of a life lived for Christ. As Sarah pointed out in chapter 2, those who preach the gospel face an enemy, the devil, or Satan, which simply means adversary. Sometimes his methods are extremely subtle trying to divide us off from each other, divide us off from God, and so to weaken us and divert us from our calling. But sometimes his methods are extremely straightforward and brutal, assaulting us physically, verbally, emotionally, to shut us up by force. But, Paul says, whatever he does to us, we must speak out the truth we believe in our hearts. Verse 13, we believe, so we speak. Even in the face of death, as chapter 1 verse 9 puts it, Paul and company have faithfully proclaimed the gospel, and so must we. After all, verse 14, what's the worst that could happen? This is not a Dr. Pepper advert. Even if we die, we are going to be raised from the dead. And at that time, we're going to have to give account to God for our lives. See also chapter 1, 14, 2, 14, and 5 verse 9. So the worst thing that can happen to us is not death. It is that in the day of the Lord Jesus we'll be found to be still unreconciled to each other. Unreconciled to God and his plans in the world. And our own lives internally unreconciled. As we believe one thing but speak another. In verse 15 as so often Paul draws draws no distinction between living for others and living for God. Self-preservation and self-interest are nowhere to be seen in the picture. As we speak out what we believe in, grace extends to more and more people, so thanksgiving increases, and it all turns to the greater glory of God. Therefore, verse 16, we do not lose heart. Whatever the devil does to us, as Acts 4 puts it, we speak with boldness the word of grace while the Lord stretches out his hand to heal. But just a little caveat on this before we move on. It does fall just outside the scope of our reading today, but chapter 6, verse 3 provides a vitally important indication of how we should speak out the truth that God has placed in our hearts. We put no obstacle in anyone's way. 
The communication of our faith should be tailored and crafted to remove, not create, obstacles to others coming to share it. It's a true story and one that I've told here a couple of times before. Sorry if you missed it. But standing, handing out turn or burn leaflets to a cinema queue does not qualify as adequately sharing your faith. It's a classic example of putting obstacles in people's way instead of clearing them out of the way. And I hope it has nothing to do, turn or burn, has nothing to do with speaking out what's in our hearts. Instruction number two, concentrate on the right reality. Verses 16b to 5.4. Post-enlightenment thinking, which I'm told began for very good reasons in the 18th century by elevating reason above faith, has tended more and more towards a situation where if science can't measure it, it doesn't really exist. And to that mindset, God, the afterlife, the spirit world are mere human inventions and they fly in the face of science. The soul is a construct. Religion, a delusion. The emotions, no more than a series of complex or simple chemical reactions. It's very difficult to change that mindset. It's not going to happen overnight. And it certainly will not happen by theological argument. When I encounter that kind of prove-it attitude to my own faith, I tend to feel rather embarrassed and inadequate. But no one is able to deny my own personal experience. Sneer as they may. And any awkwardness that I feel is just my outer self, as verse 16 has it, melting away, wasting away. I think it's particularly in those encounters that my inner self is being renewed day by day. But problems arise when we're not concentrating on the right reality. If we're overemphasizing the externals, what we look like, what people think of us, rather than the internals, where the Holy Spirit actually lives. As Romans 8 verse 6 puts it, to set the mind on the flesh is death. But to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. The same sort of idea is evident throughout this little section. Momentary affliction, incomparable weight of glory. Things seen, which are transient, things unseen, which are eternal. The mortal body, a tent. Resurrection body, a house built by God. What is mortal, swallowed up by life. So which reality do we live in? Because one is fading fast and the other is eternally renewed. And be careful to notice as well the causal link in verse 17. It is this light momentary affliction that will produce for us the eternal weight of glory. So it's no affliction, no glory. And the glory comes, verse 18, as we look, not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. My mortal body is bound to live in this physical world. It can't cope with anything else. But my mind and soul should be living connected with God in the unseen, eternal, spiritual. Our work of reconciliation is about bringing heaven down to earth so that others can experience it. There's an exodus echo in the opening of chapter 5. 
the earthly body, the tent of our wilderness wanderings, will one day be replaced by a resurrection body. That is a permanent house which has been built by God for us in the promised land. The groaning of this life is occasioned merely by temporal, temporary circumstances. Who cares what happens to this outer self as long as the inner is perpetually renewed? But notice verses 3 and 4 that Paul is definitely not saying, as the Gnostics did, that we look forward to being rid of this body altogether. Mixing his metaphors between housing and clothing, he says, we don't want to take off this tent and be naked when we die. No, we want to put on the house that God has prepared for us and be much better clothed. So what is mortal is not to die as such, but rather be swallowed up by life. This physical life, of course, is real enough, and that fact is never going to change. But if we balance it correctly with the spiritual, we're then living in the right reality. The pain of mortal existence can no longer tyrannize us, as it otherwise will. Verse 17 seems to visualize a pair of scales with one arm in this world and the other in the next. And the light Temporary sufferings of this side go flying up as the eternal weight of glory thumps down on the other. But we might ask, what will this balanced life look like in practice? Which brings us to instruction three. Pleasing God includes persuading others. Verses 5 to 11a. And I think these verses speak pretty clearly for themselves, so I'll just read them for He who has prepared for us this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. So we are always of good courage. We know that while we're at home in the body, we're away from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage. We'd rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. Now all I want or need to say about this section is A, let's not get too at home in this mortal body which is fading away. And B, when we appear before the judgment seat of Christ, let's be sure that what we've done in this mortal body is good, not evil. Therefore, verse 11, we persuade others. Pleasing God includes persuading others. Instruction four, learn to live before an audience of one. Verses 11b to 15. Once again, Paul is apparently blowing his own trumpet. And perhaps, it strikes rather a jarring note with us. Especially if you're British. If you have the good fortune to be British. But we mustn't mistake Paul's motivation. As these verses remind us, Paul's adversaries are guys who think nothing of bragging about their own credentials and decrying his. Paul himself has always been the exact opposite. Quite content to let his actions speak much louder than words. In Jesus' immortal phrase, Matthew seven sixteen and 20, by their fruits you shall know them. Because for all these people's supposed qualifications, these guys have very little substance to show for it. But Paul's ministry is the opposite. 
Therefore, he's happy to say, verse 11b, what we are is known to God. And I hope it's also known to your consciences. And he makes repeated references in this letter to the judgment day, which shows how happy he is to be judged on his record. Personally, I've learned over the years to beware of Christians who come brandishing their credentials. I've learned to look instead for humility, to look for the servant heart, to look for the fruit and the outcome of their lives. Paul wants the Corinthians, verse 12, to value the right things. Then they can confront these people who look and sound right but can't demonstrate the fruit of a good heart. In the words of the Stranglers, in a wonderful song of that same name, you'd better watch out for the skin deep. Verse 13 suggests that one of the criticisms of Paul in his absence was the suggestion that he was actually insane. And if so, it wouldn't be the first time. See Acts 26, 24. The same thing was also said about Jesus, if you remember. You know, he's beside himself. His own family said it. Mark three twenty one. But Paul's answer is robust. If we're mad, it's for God. If we're in our right mind, it's for you. So what does it matter? John Wimber had his own variant of the same sort of argument when he was criticised for, for foolishness. He said, well, I'm a fool for Christ. Whose fool are you? To the skin deep, Paul must have seemed mad to suffer as he did for the gospel and keep on going. But he's not. It's the love of Christ that controls him. And it makes him do things that other guys wouldn't. The driving force of his life, verses 14 and 15, is that he has worked out something that the rest of the world needs to know. And when he says, we have concluded this, he really means it. God didn't hand down to the early Christians a handy textbook of systematic theology. And he still hasn't given us one to this day. He has given us the Bible, largely a series of personal stories and reflections. We have to engage with God himself to work out our theology from the Bible. And Paul and company were at the very cutting edge in the early days of that process. Standing on the shoulders of theological giants as we do today, we take for granted great truths that Paul and company could only grope towards through the cloud of unknowing. Now, as many of you know, even the doctrine of the Trinity, which is fundamental to our faith and seems pretty basic to us, was only nailed down late in the 4th century. In verses 14 and 15, Paul is relating a doctrine that he'd had to work out for himself. One has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake was died and was raised. That didn't just fall out of Paul's Bible on a, on a bookmark as a memory verse. It was a revelation that sparked a revolution. But it was one that he'd had to work out for himself. And for us too, simple proof texting is a mug's game. Friend ours in the South used to say she could think of a disproof text for every proof text she'd ever heard. Where is that in the Bible? People sometimes ask. And it's not a bad question as long as you're prepared to accept the answer, well, it's all over it, but it's nowhere in a single verse. 
We're looking for the whole counsel of Scripture. We've got to be familiar with it all. Meanwhile, back at the text, verse 15, we no longer live for ourselves, but we live for Jesus. So we don't really care what anyone else thinks of us, except when it affects what they think of Jesus. We live, in Todd Hunter's immortal phrase, before an audience of one. Instruction five, never lose sight of the big picture, verses 16 to 21. The Corinthians were taken in by Paul's adversaries precisely because they regarded them, verse 16, according to the flesh. They looked at these purported letters of introduction, chapter 3, verse 1 told us, and thought, oh dear, Paul didn't have one of those. Who should we believe? But what has a letter of introduction got to do with the price of fish? They themselves, chapter 3, verse 2, are Paul's letter of introduction, there for everyone to read. There would be no church at Corinth if it wasn't for him. So Paul says, in effect, get a grip, chaps. All that legalistic stuff those guys sold you is completely irrelevant. The old has passed away, the new has come. You can forget the Jewish law and everything that looks like it. You are reconciled to God through the death and resurrection of Christ alone. Because that really is the big picture. If you're artistically minded, looking at the painting of a, 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 a battle scene, you might get fascinated with the, uh, with the brushstrokes in the breastplate of the 23rd soldier on the left. But it tells us nothing about the whole battle. You could write a PhD thesis on the eschatological significance of the locust in the life of John the Baptist, or on the death of penal substitution in 21st century soteriology. And I'd love to read them, I think. But the big picture is always the same. Verse 19, God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their infringements of the law against them and entrusting to us the ministry of reconciliation. It's a case of this is what God is doing in Christ Jesus. This is how you get involved. As we saw throughout Exodus and Hebrews, God's plan is a man, is a woman is you, is me. And of course, above all, the man who is the plan is Jesus Christ himself. But embraced within the man Jesus is every woman and man and child who accepts him as Lord and Saviour. In the Great Commission in Matthew twenty-eight eighteen, Jesus says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me, therefore go. It's not just St. Paul and his friends who are ambassadors for Christ. It's you and me. For more on the ministry of reconciliation, please pick up the podcast of an earlier talk on this passage from the 10th of January. I'd love to go through it with you all again, uh, but I think you'd lynch me. There's no time. If we hang on to the big picture, we will never stay far from God for very long. Verses 20 and 21 20b to 21 urges, be completely reconciled to God because God has made an incredible swap on our behalf. He made the sinless son of God into sin and judged it on the cross. And at the same time, he made us the very righteousness of God himself. And God's righteousness is not to be reserved for some precious few. If it were, there'd be precious few of us in the precious few. 
No, it's to be poured out into the world, which God was in Christ reconciling to himself. So, sixth and last, don't miss the boat. Chapter 6, verses 1 to 3. Together, we are becoming a people who speak out what we believe in, who live in the right reality, who persuade others because it's pleasing to God when we do, who live before an audience of one regarding no one according to the flesh, and people who never lose sight of the big picture in which we are ambassadors for Christ, God reconciling the world to himself. Now, closing out his argument, Paul appeals to us not to miss the boat. And he says he does this working together with God. In other words, this is what God himself wants. If you want to be reconciled with God, please come forward with the others who come forward for prayer, for healing and stuff in a couple of minutes. As I was doing my final edit on this talk up in my uh, office in the garden, uh, uh, the most beautiful bullfinch uh, came and just hung around, gripping onto the edge of the window. And he fluttered against the window from time to time. He just fluttered and fluttered and fluttered. He couldn't work out why he couldn't get... I think he quite likes Verdi. Um, I was playing Verdi's Otello uh, quite loudly at the time. And he was, he was trying to get in. He wanted, he wanted in. He was, in the end, he was pecking and pecking with his beak at the glass. He didn't understand the glass and why he couldn't get in. And if that's how you feel, if you feel there's somewhere you want to get in, you can hear beautiful music, but you can't get in, we'd really like to pray for you today. In the end, he got fed up and went and um, ate the buds off my apple tree instead. And some of us know that when we can't get in where we want to go, we go and do destructive stuff instead. If that's you, we'd really love to pray for you in a minute. But just before we do that, a word on receiving the grace of God in vain. And this is absolutely the end. It seems to me receiving the grace of God in vain means hearing what Jesus has to say and not doing it. You know, the man who built his house on the, on the rock and the man who built his house on the sand. Matthew 7. And in terms of the Great Commission, which we just read out of Matthew 28, it would be hearing Jesus say, all power in heaven and earth is given to me, but somehow going deaf when he says, therefore go. As we learnt in Exodus, so this passage. Our standing before God is defined far more than we think by the way we treat others. According to verse, uh, chapter 5, verse 10, our fortunes on judgment day will depend not on what we believed, but upon what we did. There's never been a better time to be reconciled to God, and there's never been a better time to persuade others to be reconciled to God. We believe, therefore we speak. In a favorable time, the Lord says, I listen to you. And in a day of salvation, I have helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers even laborers like us, into his harvest. Amen. Why don't you stand and I'll pray.